We've never done a direct update to an episode before, but new information we found profoundly impacts episode 28. We have officially changed our minds. We no longer believe that the person who killed Donna Richmond planted her clothing at the locations described at the Clifton trial. Obviously, this is a huge change for us. When we started the podcast, we believed that only the actual killer could have had possession of Donna's clothing, and that nobody within TCSO would have flat-out lied or falsified a police report. Now, today, we not only think we were wrong, but we feel that there is overwhelming evidence that proves that Donna's underpants and shoe were found near her bike on the night of December 26th, and her other shoe and pants were found on Neil Ranch on the 27th. Yes, that means that we believe that those items were collected by TCSO and planted. It appears that this was not only an effort to strengthen the circumstantial case against Oscar Clifton, but also an attempt to clear any suspicion that might have fallen on Don Lee and his family. Don was her boyfriend and the last person to see Donna alive, so normally he would have been the strongest suspect. We're talking about community gossip, rumor, and the very thin facts it takes to raise reasonable doubt at trial. If even one juror had felt that Don was a reasonable alternate suspect, it could have hung the jury and robbed Powell and Bird of the conviction. That brings us to Laverne Lamb and Donna's pants. This was always an insurmountable sticking point for us. We felt that the story was really off, but we couldn't see an obvious or convincing reason to believe that she would lie on the witness stand. We knew that Bird had been her neighbor in Farmersville, and he said that he personally rushed out to her house on that Sunday morning. Additionally, Bird refused to give the defense the signed, written statement he claimed that Lamb made, and didn't turn the pants into TCSO evidence until 11 days later. Since ABC 10 caught Bird in so many substantial lies, we no longer trust any of his statements or reports. Also, our recent re-examination of Lamb's trial testimony and conflicting statements in multiple TCSO and private investigator reports raise serious concerns about the credibility of her story. We always returned to two fundamental questions. Why would Bird ask Lamb to lie about the pants? And why would Lamb do it? It's pretty obvious why Bird would want to place Donna's pants on Avenue 264 soon after Donna was last seen. Lamb's story put the pants on the same road as the Clifton residence, and it appeared to confirm that the entire clothing trail was dropped prior to 5.45 p.m. on Friday night. After 4.30, Clifton was in the presence of multiple witnesses until his arrest at 1.30 a.m. Donna had to be dead before 4.30, or Clifton was totally eliminated as a suspect. However, it was impossible for the coroner to narrow down the time of death that precisely. All of these timing problems would have become clear to Bird early Saturday the 27th after hearing from Don Lee and Rick Carter and understanding the very tight window between 3.45 and 4.30 p.m. Since the first two clothing trail items weren't discovered until Saturday morning, it would have been simple for the defense to argue that Donna was killed later on Friday evening, after Clifton had already arrived home. 
So it's likely that Bird attempted to use the pants to both lead to Clifton's house and set Donna's time of death by backdating the clothing trail. That explains Bird's motive, but what about Lamb? This is a question we've asked ourselves at least a hundred times over the years. There was nothing in her background to suggest any issues with truthfulness. Yet her stories failed to add up. We spent some time trying to learn about Lamb's family, their relationships with parties in the case, and anything that could have been held over them, like pending criminal charges. We found nothing. Could there have been a cash payment from Powell's Witness Slush Fund or other enticement? We had no way to know, but we found no evidence to support it. Then, last week, we were asked a question about the testimony of Lamb's daughter in a different murder case. We couldn't remember the details, so we looked up the family again. We had missed something, and it was really important. Laverne Lamb had a son, Stanley, who we had looked right past. He isn't mentioned anywhere in the case, and he didn't go to school with Donna. He was 11 years older. The minute we started looking at Stanley, we found a 1971 marriage and his wife's maiden name, Scroggin. That name is a four-alarm fire in the Richmond case. It's not only the maiden name of Don Lee's mother, but the Scroggins and Lees lived on adjacent properties on North Anderson in 1975. If you remember Don Lee's testimony at trial, he said that he arrived back at his house driving a yellow Ford Pinto owned by his cousin, What type of car were you driving on December the 26th, the one that you came home in? Pinto. Ford Pinto? Ford Pinto. And the year of the Pinto, sir? I don't know. To whom does the car belong? My cousin. And his name? James Scruggins. What is the color of the Pinto? Yellow. James's sister, Linda, was married to Laverne Lamb's son, Stanley. The closeness of the family relationship and Laverne Lamb's familiarity with Don Lee and the Scroggin residents were celebrated in the Exeter Sun. Exeter Sun, Wednesday, May 15, 1974. Scroggin Lamb Family Reunion. James and Verna Scroggin expected to spend a quiet weekend at home when Mrs. Scroggin took time off from the Kawea Chuck Wagon where she usually works weekends. Instead, she hosted a family reunion which included 20 people. First of the unexpected guests to arrive was the Scroggin son, James, his wife, Cindy, and their son, Shane, from Phoenix, Arizona. James is in the Air Force and is stationed at Luke Field. Linda Darlene, their daughter, with her husband, Stan Lamb, and their daughter, Tammy, arrived next from Fort Ord. Joining the Scroggin family for a barbecue was Scroggins' mother, Ferry, his sister, Velma Lee, her husband, Alan, and their children, Donald, Julie, Diane, and Mandy, all of Exeter. Also attending the gathering were Lamb's father and mother, Clyde and Laverne Lamb, and their children, Starla and Kirsten, from Farmersville. It was the first time all four of the generations had been together in six or seven years. Exeter Sun, Wednesday, July 17, 1974. To Munich for three years. A combination birthday and farewell party for Stanley Lamb was given at the Farmersville home of his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Clyde Lamb, 
before he flew to Munich, where he will be stationed with the U.S. Army for the next three years. His wife, Linda, and their daughter, Tammy, will join him as soon as possible. Meantime, they will divide their time between the Lamb home and the Exeter home of Linda's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Jim Scroggin. Exeter Sun, Wednesday, September 11, 1974. Tammy Lamb is two. Tammy Renee Lamb, the daughter of Sergeant and Mrs. Stanley Lamb, celebrated her second birthday at the home of her grandparents, Jim and Verna Scroggin. Those attending the celebration were her great-grandmother, Annie Lamb, her grandparents, Clyde and Laverne Lamb, her aunt and uncle, Starla and Kirsten A. Also attending were her great-aunt and uncle, Velma and Alan Lee, with their children, Donald, Julie, Diana, and Mandy, and a cousin, Tiffany Rutan. Exeter Sun, Wednesday, September 11th, 1974. Roast Pig is Feature. A family dinner featuring a roast pig was held at the home of Alan and Velma Lee, celebrating the birthdays of Verna Mae Scroggin and her granddaughter, Tammy Lamb, her son Jamie and his wife Cindy, and their son Shane of Phoenix, Arizona. All birthday dates were within five days. Those attending the multiple birthday celebration, in addition to the honorees, were Mrs. Ferry Scroggin, grandmother of James and great-grandmother of Shane and Tammy, Mr. and Mrs. Alan Lee and their children, Donald, Julie, Mandy, and Diana, Jimmy Scroggin, Clyde and Laverne Lamb, and their children, Starla and Kirsten A. Starla Lamb's birthday was five days before the celebration. Also present were Mrs. Linda Lamb, Mr. and Mrs. Bert Henry, Mr. and Mrs. Vern Daly, and son Mike. The pig was a gift of the Vern Daly's and was baked by the local bakery. So, Donna was last seen at 3.45 p.m. wearing her green ditto pants, leaving the property of Linda Lamb's parents. And Linda's mother-in-law said she miraculously found those same pants in the middle of the road two hours later, about seven miles from Neal Ranch. That seems like it would be the greatest coincidence in the history of homicide investigations. What are the odds? Not only that, but she felt compelled to stop in the dark and pick up the pants, and the next night happened to guess that they might belong to Donna, despite the fact that no description of Donna's clothing was publicly disclosed. Or, Lamb never saw or touched the pants, and Bird asked her to lie. That would certainly explain why Lamb didn't know if she was on her way from work or home, which road she was on, or why she would have called Donna's mother instead of the police. Bird couldn't give the defense Lamb's written statement because it never existed. Here is a new question that we can't stop asking each other. If you believe the story in Bird's report, why weren't TCSO investigators extremely suspicious and worried when a member of the Scroggin Lee family called to say she had Donna's pants? How about when she said she'd washed that critical piece of homicide evidence? That didn't seem troubling? They didn't? 
even for a moment wonder if Lamb got the pants somewhere other than the middle of the dark road? Well, I was on my way to the bank. I'd been to work, and I was on the way to the bank, and the lights hit something on the white line in the road. Okay, and this was at nighttime then? Yes, it was quarter till six. All right, did you stop? I went on past a good little ways, and then I backed up, because it looked like new, something new, you know, clothing, so I backed up. Nobody stopped to ask if she was trying to point the finger at Clifton to cover for someone else who had the pants. If Lamb didn't find the pants in the road, and Bird didn't get them from Johnson at Neal Ranch, how did Lamb get them? These questions are incredibly disturbing to us and really shake the fundamental narrative of the state's case against Clifton. We are positive that neither P.I. Pettyjohn nor Defense Counsel Donahue had the slightest clue that Lamb was anything other than she'd claimed, a random person with no possible connection to the parties in the case. Lamb's family relationships should have completely shattered her credibility and caused the defense to dig much deeper into her entire story. The fact that Byrd and Powell had hidden this exculpatory information from the defense would have been grounds to block her testimony at trial. Instead, the jury had no idea that Laverne Lamb was part of the Scroggin Lee family. She had a clear motive to point the finger at Clifton and away from Don Lee and others living or visiting for Christmas at the Scroggin residence. How is any of this possible? Simple. TCSO and Powell made sure that Pettyjohn and Donahue had little to no access to the state's witnesses prior to trial. No statements were provided to the defense from Don Lee, Heidi Weisenberger, Judy Stewart, Carol Britton, and Laverne Lamb, and they all refused to be interviewed by Pettyjohn or Donahue. The girls who were with Donna never testified or gave sworn statements about the day. Almost everything we know about their activities comes from the newspapers. This was a huge disadvantage for the defense team because they were denied the opportunity to investigate critical details prior to the trial, and that made it too dangerous to ask important questions while the witnesses were on the stand. During the trial is a very bad time to ask a witness a question for the first time. If you aren't sure of the answer, it is better not to ask. Unlike some of the other witnesses who had been interviewed by Pettyjohn prior to trial, Donahue never asked Lamb on the stand if she knew Don Lee, Oscar Clifton, Donna Richmond, or anyone else involved in the case. It could have been the question to save Oscar's life and stop D'Angelo in 1976, but it never happened. We have Pettyjohn's reports, Donahue's handwritten intake and trial prep notes, and Oscar Clifton's correspondence. We are certain that none of them had any idea. Did Lamb have a moral and legal duty to make sure that the defense, judge, and jury knew about her relationship with the last person to see Donna alive? Yes, obviously. Did she believe that Bird knowing was enough? Maybe. Did Bird and Powell suggest that she only offer up the information if she were directly questioned about it under oath? Very likely. What about Don Lee? He obviously knew. 
how many other investigators and witnesses were aware that critical exculpatory information was being suppressed. Did D.A. Ward learn about this during his case review? Is any part of the state's case against Oscar Clifton true? We can't think of a single thing we believe. Ward lied about the source of the DNA tested in 2011 and falsely exonerated D'Angelo. But that still doesn't make any of the testimony or evidence at trial true. In fact, all it does is open the door and insist that we look for an alternate suspect in Donna's murder. All of this is particularly frustrating because Powell caused lasting trauma to Clifton's daughters by accusing them of lying on the witness stand when they testified that Oscar arrived home by 4.30. They have always told the truth, but their stories were soundly rejected by the jury at trial and again by D.A. Ward simply because their relationship to Oscar made them appear to be biased and untrustworthy. Really? So what lengths would Laverne Lamb have gone to in order to protect Don Lee and the Scroggins? Did she ever really have the pants? Was she given the pants by a family member or bird? The jury not only should have wondered about her family bias, but seriously questioned whether or not she was covering up for the person who killed Donna. There is no question that this was suppressed and that it was exculpatory information. It both casts doubt on critical evidence used in the conviction and raises new questions about the last people to see Donna alive. Why hide this information instead of letting the jury decide how to weigh Lamb's credibility? So, to recap, Donna's brother David said he found her bike on Friday night a quarter mile west of their house and one of Donna's shoes the next morning on Avenue 264. However, at least four different newspapers reported that the same shoe was actually found with her bike. At trial, the jury heard TCSO Logan testify that he personally found the shoe on 264, but then he admitted on cross-exam that a citizen had called first. The jury never knew that the so-called citizen was really David Richmond. Why wasn't David asked about how he found the shoe while he was testifying on the witness stand? Why did Logan lie and say he found it? TCSO King testified at trial that he just happened to spot Donna's underwear and Kotex pad in the ditch on 176 while driving along a Grove siding road. However, his report from that morning contains absolutely no mention of 176, the underwear, or finding anything. Why wouldn't he document in any way his discovery of a key piece of evidence in a homicide investigation? That's not proper police procedure, and his reports meticulously cataloged and matched all of his other testimony in the case. Like the shoe, at least three newspaper stories stated that the underwear was really found in the grove off-list with Donna's bike. Were Donna's other shoe and pants the, quote, pieces of victims' clothing that TCSO Johnson had collected at Neal Ranch but never logged into evidence? The next morning, Sunday, TCSO Hoffman and Logan said that they found Donna's second shoe on Avenue 264 
on the same side of the road as the first shoe. Why hadn't TCSO found it when they were out there looking on Saturday? How had David Richmond and his friends missed seeing it? Why was it only suddenly visible on Sunday morning? How did they happen to find it at the exact same time that Bird said he got the pants from Laverne Lamb? If the entire clothing trail is a lie, is there any reason to believe that the invoice book was originally found next to Donna's bike? Did Bert drive out and retrieve it from Oscar's truck before responding to List? Is that how he ordered Johnson to ignore most of the tire tracks and only photograph those he thought could match the two trucks in Oscar's driveway that night? That would certainly explain why the invoice book wasn't mentioned in any of the Richmond's original statements and why David's fingerprints weren't on it. What if literally nothing ever actually pointed at Oscar, not even circumstantially? Did Bird get the call about finding Donna's bike and immediately drive out to the Clifton house? Did he take the invoice book back to the bike scene to create articulable suspicion and probable cause to search the residence and trucks and bring Oscar in for questioning? What does TCSO Johnson know about all of this? What truth was he expecting to see come out someday? If Bird pressured Laverne Lamb to lie and say she found Donna's pants on Friday night, can we believe that Don Lee wasn't pressured to push back the time Donna left his house? Could she have left later, closer to four o'clock? This is the problem with lies. They may seem harmless at the time, and you may be able to justify them by saying you're putting a bad guy in prison, but even one lie casts doubt on the entire case. Why would you need to lie, plant evidence, and pressure witnesses if you were prosecuting the correct suspect? Shouldn't the facts and truth be more than enough? So we're out here again, shouting into the wind. In any normal case, this information would be immediate grounds to overturn Clifton's conviction. No matter what else is true, critical details about a key witness were suppressed from the defense and the jury. That is a fact. Laverne Lamb was not a random good Samaritan with no connection to the case. If the evidence against Clifton fell apart, community and police suspicion would immediately go to Don Lee and to the Scroggins, Lamb's own family. Did Byrd make that threat clear? We're talking about possible evidence and witness tampering, suborning perjury, and suppression of exculpatory information by TCSO. That should matter a lot, but it won't. The simple solution would be a court hearing on actual innocence, with every living witness testifying under oath and penalty of perjury and using current rules for scientific evidence. Unfortunately, that won't happen. Who is going to step in and petition the court for a hearing? It won't be TCSO or DA Ward. This case is a stain on the justice system and everyone involved should feel ashamed of their part in it. This has gone far beyond Clifton and D'Angelo and Who Killed Donna. It's about right 
and wrong. 